0: MFA Writers. The pod team is on summer vacation, so consider this your chance to catch up on any episodes you've missed. This week, we've got a re-release of an early episode featuring Alejandro Puyana, who attended the Michener Center for Writers at the University of Texas at Austin. Alejandro is a fantastic fiction writer whose debut novel comes out in 2024. The podcast will be back later this month to kick off season four. Until then, you can find MFA Writers on Instagram and Twitter, as well as MFAWriters.com. We love to hear from listeners, so feel free to shoot us a direct message on one of those platforms or an email at MFAWritersPodcast at gmail.com. And if you have a minute to rate or review the show, the best place to do that is on Apple Podcasts. Doing so will help boost our podcast as we try to boost these amazing writers. Also, if you or someone you know would like to be a guest on the show, you can apply at mfariders.com. On that same website, you can also click the support button to support us financially, if it's within your means. Or you can do so by going directly to buymeacoffee.com slash mfariders. Finally, as always, thank you for listening, and we hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to MFA Writers, the podcast where we talk to creative writing MFA students about their program, their process, and a piece they're working on. I'm your host, Jared McCormick. Today I'm with Alejandro Puyana, a second-year fellow at the University of Texas at Austin's Michener Center for Writers. Alejandro has published nonfiction pieces in The Toast, Tin House Online, NPR, and The Huffington Post, and fiction at Wizache, The Examined Life, and Idaho Review. His short story, Hands of Dirty Children, was chosen by ZZ Packer as the winning story of American Short Fiction's Halifax Ranch Prize, and later chosen by Curtis Sittenfeld to be included in the 2020 Best American Short Stories collection. Today, Alejandro has brought an excerpt
1: from a new story he's working on titled Strings. Strings. Three in the afternoon in Spanish Harlem and Florentino Romero is running down the stairs of his building. He has to avoid the center lip of the steps, where erosion has made them slick and murderous. He wears brown bell-bottoms that hug his skinny legs and his not-really-there ass, flashy platform shoes, silver, and a white cotton shirt with a white collar, the first three buttons loose. His curly chest hair is tangled with a golden crucifix, a silver medallion with the image of La Virgen de Coromoto, and a small ebony fist. All hanging from the same thin chain. Florentino Romero carries a leather case. It's scratched, banged, a big dent on one corner, but it still protects the trumpet inside, a golden child in a red velvet uterus. He slams through the door of the building and into the Nueva York summer, humid, raucous, and funky. Florentino jumps over a stream of trash juice flowing from the mountain of bags on the corner of Lex and 107 and barely misses the wrong side of a yellow cab trying to catch the light. Permiso, permiso, he says as he bumps shoulders with two Dominican women gossiping about the Esmeralda telenovela. Sorry, men, voy tarde, he says as he nearly runs over the man in the green apron organizing the bananas in the fruit stand. Paga lo que debes, papi he hears the yell from Fulgencio, aimed like a heat-seeking missile at him from the newsstands across the street. You don't mess with Fulgencio on his five-foot-nothing frame. This is Fulgencio's nightly ritual, only known fully by his two ex-wives. A round of rope, a round of speed bag, a round of heavy bag, a round of shadow boxing, repeat that five times, 100 sit-ups, the crack of an egg shell on a glass and the pouring of whole milk over golden yolk and the swallowing of leche con huevo. One cold shower, his naked body in bed if it's summer, one medal pulled from a drawer. The medal, bronze, for participation. On one side, five athletes representing the different continents all pull a rope. A year, 1936, a place, Berlin. On the reverse side of the Olympic bell, The German eagle in relief as well as the Olympic rings. It tastes like blood when Fulgencio kisses it goodnight. I've got you, Fulgi. Where do you think I'm going now? Florentino yells back and raises his trumpet up as if that is any guarantee for Fulgencio. Fulgencio dismisses him with a wave of his rough hand and remembers that lending money to musicians is its own form of charity. Down Lex, still. Florentino sees the shape of the 98 bus. On a weekday, he would catch it. His strides are long, his lungs, a trumpet player's organs. The last time he ever remembers being out of breath was in primary school in Venezuela, playing sandlot baseball with Tulio and Gonzalo and El Flaco and the other kids of Fey Alegria. At first, the Jesuit priests had no idea what to do with a ball that you didn't kick, but by the seventh grade, the lot was equally populated by pimpled teenagers and balding Spaniards in black robes. But today, on a Sunday, the bus isn't trapped by traffic. It pulls out of the bus stop and Florentino is still half a block away. The sputter from the bus's exhaust feels like a cackle. Florentino looks at his watch and makes the calculation. He actually considers walking an hour and a half, an hour if he rushes, but Chateau Madrid is not the type of gig you get too sweaty or late. The Black Cat, the Corso, even Ipanema, he'd be good. But a Chateau Madrid matinee is the type of gig where people notice, where a 60-something man in an impeccable blue suit could whisper to the maitre d'. That's big with a trumpet seems a bit disheveled, don't you think? Maybe we should have a talk with the band leader about it for next time. Then there's no more Chateau Madrid gig for Florentino, an easy job that actually pays, where the tips flow at whiskey-sour rate. The first two are free at the Chateau on Sundays. He's on 103 now and walking down the steps of the subway, six line. He hates it. He hates the smell, bouquet of urine and dust. He hates the way his skin turns chicken-like and clammy as soon as the cold draft hits him halfway down the steps. He hates looking up at the ceiling and feeling like the whole world could cave in at any moment and crush him. The Chateau gig, though. He owes Fulgencio. He owes his landlord. He owes Graciela, the Puerto Rican waitress he flirts with over at Sal's. I'll get you next time, mi vida, te lo prometo. She didn't seem convinced. He hasn't sent money to Venezuela in two weeks. His mom doesn't mention it in her letter. She's a saint. But the shame strikes from between her cursive penmanship like a jaguar from tall grass. Alejandro,
0: thank you so much for sharing that with us and thanks for being here.
1: Oh, you're welcome. Thank you for having me.
0: I'm so excited that you chose to read something that's like in progress. I'm really curious to talk about your process, writing it, like where you are in that process, how you revise all those things. And like, as I was reading this excerpt, one thing that really stuck out to me was just some of these like really wonderful lines and descriptions that are already in this piece. A couple that I love are the apartment steps where erosion has made them slick and murderous. And that last line, how his mother's shame strikes from between her cursive penmanship like a jaguar from tall grass. I think that's that's beautiful. Oh, thank you. And this this excerpt is very atmospheric. The sights and the sounds and the smells of this neighborhood are front and center. So for you, what most often propels a first draft? Is it a character or a setting that gets you going? Or is it usually like a plot point that you're working towards?
1: Yeah, for me, uh, very usually it's actually a subject matter that I'm interested about. Um, I think character actually comes a little bit later. Um, In this case, I really wanted to um, uh, tell a story about this huge Latin American concert that happened in Zaire um, in 1974 where a bunch of musicians were flown over for uh, the Muhammad Ali uh, foreman fight. Um, and I've been in love with that story. I've seen documentaries about it and I I really love salsa music and I wanted to write about that moment in time in New York city when salsa was really sort of starting to explode. Um, so I knew I wanted to write about that. And then, you know, having that subject in mind, I've, I've, I've sort of known that I was going to write about this for like at least a couple of years, two or three years. Um, And once the subject is there and I've kind of gotten to it where I want to actually sit down and write it, then i start to think about plot. Um, And, you know, I pick a character, but I don't really know much about that character yet. And that character kind of reveals itself as I'm writing the first draft. Um, And I usually take, take a little bit of time on on that first draft. I'm not a fast writer, um, and I kind of edit a little bit as I go uh, just while I'm figuring out even what the story is. You know, in this case, it took me a while, and I'm sure we're going to talk about some of the obstacles of this story, but that's one of them is just figuring out what the story actually is. Like here, I knew that I want to start in New York City. I knew that I wanted a Venezuelan musician that is sort of in this salsa life when when this phenomenon is happening in the city. So that's that's how it started. And, you know, it was just, oh, he needs to get to a gig and he's in New York City. And that's that was the jumping off point. And go from there,
0: right? Yeah, I mean, you you said that you kind of edit as you were going, I was going to ask you about this, because some writers will say that they just turn off that editing part of their brain completely for the first draft and just let it all flow and then go back and edit. And then other writers, like yourself, it sounds like, are kind of editing along the way. So what are you looking for? as you're writing that first draft that makes you go back and make little edits? Like, is there something you're trying to achieve or other things maybe conversely that you're trying to avoid as you're writing that first draft?
1: Yeah. I mean, there are certain things that I know I want on a first draft. Um, Like I think most important to me is sort of action and movement. Like I want to make sure that whatever character I have has an objective right off the bat that they're trying to accomplish. And it, I don't think that objective, and, and certainly in this case it isn't, that, object, that objective doesn't have to be the heart of the story, doesn't have to be the big question that the story's trying to answer. It just has to be something that gives the character something to accomplish so the reader can be pulled along by one string of tension. In this case, it's him getting to the to the venue, right to the to the mm-hmm. uh, show that he's trying to get to in time to. That's and so once I picked that, I know that for me as a writer, that's going to let me write. That's going to give me something to write towards. So in this case, I started with that, um, and then things started to populate in the environment. Some idiosyncrasies of the character started to pop up like i could tell that he was sort of obviously having some economic issues he needs the money um i figured out that he has somebody back home that he's sending money to Um, i also kind of figured out that he's a guy that actually works pretty hard that he's not like just this guy that lazies around, but all that sort of stuff started to populate his character. But then I run into the issue because it's a first draft and I'm kind of like making it up as I go along that I need to go back and sort of fine tune some stuff before I can feel confident enough to move forward. And I wish I was the writer (laughs) that didn't do this. I wish that I could just move on and just kind of keep a mental note of things that I need to fix later but it is important to me to sort of at the sentence level have things that sort of look nice or or have a certain sound that is pleasing to me or a certain rhythm and it's very hard for me to move past that if if I still feel like it's clunky or um so Yeah, it's not a slow process for me to get the first draft (laughs) out, but it it works for me. Yeah. Well, one thing that I hear a lot
0: when I talk to people who have worked at Lit Mags or who have worked in publishing is um, for short stories, the first page has to be great and it really has to grab the reader's attention because there's just so many people sending in stories. And if you want your story noticed, it's got to grab that reader's attention because they might be reading 50, 60 stories at one time. Right. Yeah. So totally. Is that something that you're thinking about when you work on a short story? And if so, um, are you going back and like fine tuning that first page? Is that like a thing that you want fine tune
1: before you move on? Like
0: really have that hook?
1: I, I think I, um I don't. And like, I definitely do that on my second draft, like first page revision. Um, first draft, I just want to make sure that there's something that's pulling the reader along. In this case, it's him going, getting to Chateau Madrid. That's enough for me at this stage. Um, and then that it sounds nice and that it has a rhythm. But certainly, um, once I get to my second draft, I think that first page, those first five, six paragraphs, um, are, our are, our point of focus for sure. I was, I was actually thinking about that a little bit earlier. Um, there's this amazing short story collection, uh, Friday black. Um, and I always murder his name, uh, Nana Kwame. Ajay Uh Ajay Brenya Um, I love that collection. And the the title story in that collection um, has an amazing first page because it sets up the world really nicely. But what really captures me from that story is I think it's in the maybe fourth or fifth paragraph when he sets up that there's a competition to see how many coats each salesman sells. And we're talking about like a post-apocalyptic world where zombies are shopping like it's a very sort of weird setup but that line of oh I'm gonna sell the most coats because I want to get this prize for my mom that's that's the sentence that for me is like okay this story has hooked me now not because of all the zombies killing themselves to get in and buy stuff but because there's something at stake for this this guy that's selling coats, you know. Yeah, for
0: anyone who hasn't uh read that collection, number 1, go read it tomorrow mm-hmm. because it's fantastic. Uh but that story in particular, Friday Black is a play on Black Friday. Um so yeah, I, that's interesting. I this is something I've been thinking about recently too because I've been um I've been doing a practicum this semester at New Letters, which is published uh, here at my university. It's a great literary magazine, and I've got to read through the slush pile and start thinking about some of these things that really catch a reader's attention. And so I have been thinking about that first page. But I find, I think this is kind of what you were saying, that it's more important when I'm drafting a story for the first page to motivate me to keep writing Mm -hmm. something in there is exciting me to keep writing the draft. And then once it's out, once it's finished, I can go back and revise the first page with the reader in mind. So when, first off, is that, is that kind of the same for you? And then second, when you go back to revise um, and start thinking about revision, what are you looking for when you examine that first draft?
1: Yeah, no, that's, that's exactly how i feel about it too i mean uh it's so important for the writer to be excited about the material uh for it to really sort of um move and sing when later on um i think what i'm looking for um in revision after that first draft is definitely fine-tuning stuff in this, in this particular case. So, so where I am in the story right now is I finished the first draft, like maybe three weeks ago. Um, I've had a chance to workshop it in one of my workshops at the Mitchner. So I have a lot of stuff to that I've a lot of feedback that I've received. Um, and now I'm, I haven't done anything with it. I'm just sitting, sitting on that and kind of just thinking about the piece, not even, um, Taking specific time to think about it, but just letting it marinate and sort of think about it. But I know that once, um, once I get back into it, uh, the first thing I'm going to look is at those first, uh, at that first page, those first two pages and sort of tighten up as much as I can. Um, and then for this particular story, I think what I'm lacking a little bit in, in the first few chapters is sort of emotional stakes. I mean, there's a lot of movement, there's people going, coming and going, and he has to get something done. But there's certain emotional registers or thematic things that are still not coming through. But later on in this story, it's sort of divided in two point of views. Florentino in the 1970s in New York City, and then his grandson um, later on in Venezuela, who's also a trumpet player. Uh, but for the National Orchestra, for the Youth Orchestra in Venezuela, which is a very sort of uh, lauded youth orchestra, the Simon Bolívar uh, Symphonic. Um, so there's the heart of the story is really the relationship between the grandfather and the grandson. And there's certain emotional registers that come come across later on that I want to start sort of at least planting seeds in this first um first few pages uh, for it to really pay off later so now that I have the story and I know that that's the heart of it for me the challenges in this revision how can I start injecting some of that some of those emotional stakes into the beginning of the story what when I was writing it I didn't even know what the story was going to be about so of course they just don't exist on the page yet so that's it's folding in all this stuff that I discovered later on while I was writing the story is folding that stuff into the beginning of it and making sure it, it makes sense as a complete piece.
0: Yeah, that totally makes sense to me. So it's like what I'm hearing is it's really about finding that balance when you're drafting a piece between like um, trying to hook the reader and get the piece moving, but also leaving space to figure things out as you go and let the character, like you said, the characters sometimes don't really develop until later in the story. And some of those themes, those themes, those characters, those are coming to you later in a draft usually?
1: Yeah, usually. I mean, it's it's it, it varies from story to story, of course. Like I think with uh, Hands of Dirty Children, um, that character came much more clear to me early on. Like I feel like that first, the first draft draft of that story, the character came much more fully formed than this one. Um, And maybe it was, you know, because of the emotional weight of it, because of the, just the inherent drama of, of children living in the streets. Um, And because it's told from a kid's point of view, like the voice is all like for me, the voice was already going to have to be kind of at the same time, innocent. And at the very, at the same time, very practical because he, the kid is surviving in the streets, but he's still a child. So there had to be those two components that kind of like danced with each, with each other. Um, so in that case, I, I think the voice and the character came a little bit earlier than on strings. Um, and then on most of the other stuff that I've written, um, usually a character sort of like builds as I write, or I just more than building the character. I think I discover the character as I write through the story. And then second draft is all about making it look like I had thought about that from the very beginning. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly.
0: I love that. So, um, you go back, you're doing your vision. How, long does it usually take you to revise a piece before you're like, okay, this is done? And then second part of that question, how do you know it's done? And how do you, like for you, how do you know that it's ready to submit? Is there, is there something that jumps out to you? Something that tells you that?
1: Yeah, I think, I think me knowing that it's done and me knowing that it's ready to submit is two different things. Like like I often submit before, I feel in my heart that the story is perfect. Um, Because I think at least for me, uh, when I finish writing a story and I've worked on it for a little bit, um, I get impatient with it and I know that it might need a little bit more. um, And I know that it could be more perfect, but I get impatient with it. And I've just said, I just say, all right, this feels, this feels good to me. There's, there's some rough edges that maybe even add sort of energy to the piece that if, if I smooth them out more, if I try to tighten it more, it might, I might even start losing some, some of the vibrancy of the, of the story. Um, So once I've, once I've revised it a few times, And I know that the core of the story is there and that the language is pretty. Like I I like the way the story sounds, even though there might be things to perfect. I think most of the time I just stop there Um, and I start sending it out. And if I get plenty of rejections, which is usually the case, um... Usually there's some stuff that starts to kind of float up um, and I'm like, okay, maybe this, this section needs some work.
0: So this story strings takes place in New York city, as you mentioned, but that other story you mentioned, hands of dirty children, which won the Halifax prize, Halifax ranch prize at American short fiction and was later included in the 2020 best American short stories collection is based in your home country of Venezuela. So I wanted to talk about that a little bit. Mm-hmm. How important has your experience in and connection to Venezuela been to your writing?
1: Um, yeah, I mean, it's the reason why I write pretty much. Um, I moved. I grew up in Venezuela, went to high school and college there, and I moved to Austin in 2006 uh, for grad school. I was I was 26 then um and I was I came to do a master's degree in advertising um, and the Venezuelan political situation already then was really tough um and now is just as tough as not more uh the country is sort of um economically in, in crisis, uh, there's a lot of issues that we're dealing with, both political, economical, societal. There's it's, it's very complex. But when I left in 2006, my whole family was in Venezuela. There were plenty of um, moments of protest and great tension and great danger for my family. I think I felt really guilty um, that I was here and I was – safe. Um, while, you know, my brother was, was marching, you know, every other day and getting in skirmishes with, you know, the national guard and, uh, people were, uh, being shot and being taken prisoner, all this sort of stuff. Um, and, you know, I had written a little bit in college in Venezuela. I had sort of written some short stories sort of imitating some of my favorite writers at the time. And I had shown it to a few people. I mean, it was, I liked doing it, but it was never, I'd never considered it something, a path that I could take um, later on in life. But with this being in Austin, being obsessed with watching the news about what was happening back home and being on the phone with my parents and my brother all the time about, you know, what are you guys doing this weekend? Are you guys going to be safe? Where's the march? Where are you guys beginning? The only way that I found to process all of that was writing about it. Um, and there was one particular moment. Um, I was living in Austin and my brother got, um, got held hostage by some by some guys. He was uh, in a friend's house. They were waiting to go out to a soccer game and these guys broke into the house to rob it. Uh, the police somehow found out, came and cordoned off the, the, the place and they were held hostage in that house for, I don't know, a few hours, a couple of hours, something like that. Um, and my mom called me that night after it had happened. So my brother was already safe. I didn't realize anything that was going on while it was going on. And then my mom called me and told me the story. And then I eventually talked to my brother about it. And it felt, um, like so overwhelming. Uh, and I'd been through similar experiences in the past in Venice, when I lived in Venezuela, um, being kidnapped is certainly something that you hear about often that people around you has, have experienced. Um, this wasn't the first time that something like this happened very close to me. Um, but being away, being in a different place, like made a huge difference um, because it, took away this illusion of control that we have. Like if we are in the same place with our family, we feel like we have some control over our emotions, over their emotions, being together, being able to, you know, hug your brother after this horrible traumatic experience. Um, I can do any of that. Uh, and I wrote, I wrote about it and it helped me a lot to sort of be able to, to figure out in my head, uh, why Venezuela was the way it was at least in for me. Right. Um, and try to figure out what my brother might've been feeling and what I was feeling. Um, and that eventually became an essay. Uh, and I, I, at some point I submitted that essay, that was the uh, the first piece that I ever published was an essay on, um, at that time, it was called The Butter. It was uh, Roxane Gay's uh, sort of spin-off blog, blog uh, at The Toast. Um, uh, it was called Two Kidnappings. And that was the first piece that I ever, I ever got published. Um, and since then, not since the publication, but since the writing of that essay, like writing became a way for me to process, everything that was happening in Venezuela and a way to calm myself down. Um, And that's where I really fell in love with it um, at that point.
0: Well, before I move on, if you don't mind me asking, how's your family doing now?
1: Everyone's good. Um, My uh, parents moved that they've since then, they've all migrated to the US. My dad was the last person to do so uh, right before the pandemic hit. And, and my, my dad and my mom still sort of share their time between Venezuela and the U S but they spend most of their time here. My brother moved here about two years ago. Um, so everyone's safe and everyone's slowly been, been migrating.
0: Um, so, you know, you said you, you wrote first an essay, um, about this that helped you process it. I'm curious now that you write fiction, what is it about fiction that you think makes it uniquely suited for exploring these complex situations and emotions and traumas that we go through in our actual lives?
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think it's that process of inhabiting other, other heads, other places. Uh, I mean, certainly the freedom that fiction gives you to explore things. Um, you know, when I wrote uh, Hands of Dirty Children, it was certainly an experience that I had never had, you know, being being on the streets. Um, but it was something... I knew that the story of contemporary Venezuela, like, couldn't be even approached without sort of without noticing the great injustices and inequalities of that society um, without recognizing the immense pain that the country has inflicted on, on its citizens of all kind of stripes, especially the most vulnerable. Um, And I, I remember like, like, Strings like the story that I'm working on now. I mean, I knew that I wanted to write about street children in Venezuela because when I would visit my family there, I was just so, you know, I would go every year or every year and a half. And every time I went, something huge had changed in the country, you know? And one of those times... I just saw like groups of kids, like five to ten kids strong, just s- surviving in the streets, and that's something that certainly existed when I was living there, um, but not to this extent. Um, and it just it just shook me in in a way that I couldn't quite escape. And I thought about it for a very long time, and I couldn't quite quite process it and it wasn't until I wrote I wrote the piece that it sort of I was able to at least approach it in some sort of way and kind of handle it Uh,
0: well after finishing Hands of Dirty Children you told me that was like three years ago you finished that story and then you mostly turned your attention to writing your first novel so Mm -hmm. what motivated that change
1: well I think I think I wanted to tackle the my my questions about Venezuela in a larger sort of way um the novel also stemmed from my brothers' uh, from my brothers' kidnapping, um, and uh, I knew that I wanted to write about that sort of in a in a from a fiction lens, um, and I wanted to explore sort of the history of Venezuela in a more in depth way, in a way that a short story wasn't really adequate. So yeah, I am I embarked on that on that project, um, which at first started very, uh, innocently, I guess. (laughs) I thought that it was going to be just like, I would write for a few months. I would, you know, get to 80,000 words and, you know, it would be done. But of course that hasn't been the case and it's been sort of ballooning and it's, uh, I started working on it for a, a, workshop that I found in Austin a few years ago, um, and worked on it there. And then eventually when I got into the program, then really, really sort of focused on that. Um, and yeah, and I also just wrapped up the first draft of that project, uh, about a month, a month ago or a month and a half ago. So I'm very excited to jump into the revisions for that, which will take obviously a lot longer.
0: Well, I was going to ask. I mean, we've talked a little bit about revising, but mostly in the context of short stories. So, what do you anticipate being different about revising this long form piece of work?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's all speculation because I've never written a novel before this one, <laughs> so it's all new territory for me. Um, I know it's going to take take a lot of work. I mean, thankfully, I. And I'm sure we're going to get this when we start talking about the Michener, but uh, the program has been so amazing in helping me sort of mold the novel. I think structurally, uh, it's been the biggest help because they really, through different workshops and different people reading it, I've really found a structure that I think works really well. And that's what uh, I was the most afraid of when I tackled the novel, because it became like a three, three piece, three part novel. And it was, it's kind of complex and sprawling in both time and location. So I was really kind of petrified about what that would mean, but the program really helped me think about it and, and find a structure that right now feels like it's working really well. Um, So that piece of the puzzle, at least for now, seems like it's, it's working and that's a big one. Um, Now for me, it's all about length. I mean, it's, it's a long novel. I know that I need to tighten. I know that I need to cut. And uh, that's where all of my efforts are going to be sort of focused on in the next few months. Um, And I have no idea how difficult or easy it's going to be. I'm sure it's going to be more difficult than easy. But I'll, I'll get started when this semester ends. Um, I have plenty of other stuff to do until then. So I'm not even going to gonna worry about it <laughs> for now. Well,
0: it might not be easy, but I hope it's fun. Uh, it sounds yeah. like a really interesting pro- project. And is that going to be the thesis for your MFA program? Is that what you're anticipating?
1: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, it's going to take uh, – I'm, I'm on the end of my second year, so I have one more year left in the program and uh, – yeah, it's gonna be all all working on that until until I finish.
0: It sounds exciting. I can't wait to read it. Um, but yeah, let's 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 switch gears a little bit and talk about the Michener Center for Writers. Um, this is one of two programs actually at the University of Texas at Austin. But what sets the Michener Center apart is that it's a three year, fully funded residency program that does not require any teaching. The idea being that students can fully focus on their writing while they're in the program. It's a pretty prestigious program. It's generally considered one of the, the best in the country. Only 12 writers are admitted each year. According to the website, the acceptance rate is less than one half of 1% in fiction, and between 2 and 3% for the other genres. Someone hearing that might get discouraged at these facts and figures and maybe not apply at all. But you did the opposite, applying four times before getting accepted. So, please tell us about your decision to apply in the first place and what made you continue to apply after being rejected the first three times.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, first of all, I'll say that um, there are plenty of people that get, in, get accepted into the Michener after their first try. Like two or three times is not uncommon at all. A lot of people. it it happens like that for, for, for some of us. Um, for me, like I had to stay in Austin. I had started a business in 2014. Um, I couldn't really move. Um, and I really, I knew that I wanted to pursue, to pursue the, the writing thing. Um, so I applied to, all of the programs that were around here, I applied to New Writers Project, which is the uh, other program at the University of Texas. Um, I applied to the missioner and then I also applied, applied to Texas State, which is uh, just an hour away uh, in San Marcos, Texas. And I knew I needed to stay here so that that's the reason why um, it felt OK to just keep applying, because I knew that I couldn't sort of broaden my my search for a program. I knew that it was an amazing program. Um, I knew that it was worth it to keep applying. And I also knew that I was getting better at the craft of writing. I mean, I found a, I found a workshop outside of university that really helped me sort of fine tune my stories. Um, I had a group of people that I showed the work to. uh, And I mean, it, I quickly realized that the application that I had sent in the first year wasn't good enough. I mean, I still needed to work on writing. And I, I can honestly say that without those three years of having a workshop outside of school, of really working on different stories, that I I, I would have never gotten in, right? Even though, I, I mean you know i i felt that first year that i applied that i i had a an interesting sort of point of view something and i had sort of a passion in me that that could translate into really good writing with some help um but i think the reality at uh, for most programs in the us is that you have to for for them to accept you you have to already sort of have some chops and, and, and those chops you can only get by, by writing and by sort of uh, taking the time to, to do it.
0: Well, we're getting to kind of um, the end of the um, notification season, if you want to call Mm -hmm. it that, where people are starting to find out whether they got into programs or whether they didn't. And I'm sure someone's listening right now who applied to the missioner program and Mm -hmm. didn't get in. And I would encourage you Go out and buy a copy of Best American Short Stories at an independent bookstore, as Alejandro would say, and uh, or, or go to Electric Lit where it's, it's been reprinted there as well. You can read it for free and read The Hands um, of Dirty Children. That story is fantastic. And just the idea that, like, you took your time, you worked at it, you improved and you became this writer who can write a story like that and get into Michener. It's just a matter of keep just keep going, keep writing, believe in yourself, keep getting better because it's a continuous process, right? You, exactly. you never stop learning as a writer. Um, so I'm curious then, what do you feel like you've learned about the application and selection process at Michener that might be helpful to applicants who are listening?
1: Yeah, sure. Uh, um, so the first thing I would say about that is that Um, the most important part of the application, like 100% is the writing sample. If the writing is good, then that's your, that's your ticket in. Um, so definitely to focus on the writing sample the most, uh, I know the process, uh, there's a pool of readers that the Michener Center has, uh, that are sort of the, the, the first people that read the work. They're very, very smart uh, readers, but they're not faculty. They're not decision makers. They're just basically reading the pieces and separating into maybe piles, no piles. And I really like this piles basically. Um, And I think for that, some of the stuff that we were talking about early or in, in our conversation is really important. And it's, those first few pages need to really, really work very well. Um, because usually like readers for a magazine, like readers for journals, those first few pages are going to be the things that tell the reader, this is worth my time. And, you know, those readers have, I, I believe have to read the story completely. They can't just stop. Um, but that's, those, those first few pages are really going to make a difference. Um, I've also heard this question a lot. And I'm, par- I'm part of a few of those uh, sort of MFA Facebook uh, groups. They certainly helped me a lot when I was applying. Um, there's a few of them in Facebook. Um, but I hear the question, this question post a lot there about um, if I should submit two stories, if I should submit one, if I should submit an excerpt of a novel. And I, I have a strong feeling that it's much better to apply with just one story than it is with more than one. I mean, a lot of, a lot of writers feel like if I percent range, then uh, the Michener will really like that I can write in these different registers, but it is my strong feeling that it's more important for the Michener to for writers to have a really strong point of view uh, and to have something that maybe differentiates them from other writers. I mean, the, the student uh, population in the program is extremely diverse. I think the Michener is interested in populating the program with people that are bringing sort of, different experiences into the mix. So if you as a writer have a strong point of view about something, about anything that's really your passion and it's what really drives your writing, I think submitting something that has that in it is very important. Um, it's certainly gonna gonna tell the faculty if, if you get to that stage this is a piece that will help other writers in the program sort of discover something new about their own writing. Um, Because I know that the best part of the program for me has been uh, reading the work of, of the, uh, the other fiction writers in my cohort. I mean, everyone's coming at it from, from a different set of experiences, from a different point of view. So if you have that, I mean, certainly, lead with it. Um, and one one great story that sort of shows that I think is going to be better than one story that kind of shows that, and another one that is completely different because you wanted to kind of show that you could you could only you could do more than one thing. And then
0: also, you're writing fiction in this program in your second language, um, your first language being Spanish. So, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit as well and how it's been to write in your second language and how supportive the program has been to you um, as a writer in a second language.
1: Yeah. um, Well, the the truth of the matter is that I started writing when I was living here and I had been living here for a little while. Um, And I think I, I wanted to tell these stories in English because I'm, I think that these are the stories of Venezuela are um, very interesting and very rich. And I want people to know about my country and, and, you know, English as a, as a written language has so much reach. Um, So it it felt, it felt uh, good to me to step into that world and try to, do my best, uh, to, to tell these stories and, and kind of translate some of the, some of the aspects of my culture, um, and try my best. That, that's what, that felt important to me. That felt like a, a motivation. It, it felt, uh, like it drove me, uh, and it drove my passion for, for writing. So that's, that's why I do it. I, I, right i also write some stuff in spanish but i'm so focused on on the program right now and on these pieces that that i'm not doing it that much right now but it's something that i would i would love to certainly do more of in the future i, I mean the program has been 100% supportive with with everything i mean they're so they They tell you this the second you arrive, right? that everyone there is at the service of the work that the people are doing in the program. And I I felt that completely. I mean, the faculty, the staff, um, the resources that they they give the students, um, it's all towards the goal of helping the writer realize, their projects, whatever they are passionate about. Um, and they they they're just stewards and, and shepherds of that kind of philosophy. Um, they really leave you pretty much alone if you want to. And they are as hands off or as hands-on as each student needs. Um, and they're always available and always ready. I mean the program I think has the reputation it has uh, because they are that way because they really follow through on that kind of ethos of you're here to make to have time to make great work and we're gonna try our best for you to do that.
0: Well, another unique part of the program is the interdisciplinary focus. Um, while while writers apply and are admitted in a primary genre, either fiction, poetry, playwriting, or screenwriting. They also study a secondary genre. Your secondary focus is screenwriting. What, what made you go in that direction? Uh, I, I'm a really
1: bad poet. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, I mean, I, I love movies. I love movies so much. Um, before the pandemic, I was in a theater two or three times a week. Uh, I really, really, really love it. And I, I've always wanted – I mean – when I was a kid, I wasn't necessarily a huge reader. Like I, I, I I wasn't one of those kids that like is reading Virginia Wolf at 12 years old in a, in a reading nook in a house or something. And like, I read tons of comic books. I watched tons of movies. That was sort of like my thing. Um, and certainly, movies was one of my my first loves. So it seemed it, it was pretty obvious to me that if if I had the chance to learn how to write movies, that I would jump at it. So it it, it was really easy for me to make um, that decision, um, and it really excited me. Uh, like that's one of the things that excited me so much about the Michener is that you were allowed, uh, not allowed, you were required to do it.
0: So. How has learning about screenwriting helped you think about fiction or
1: vice versa? Um, That process is still happening. I think uh, structure is certainly the big, big thing that screenwriting is is sort of hammering into my head. I mean, movies, most movies sort of follow a three-act structure. It's very – the parameters of writing a screen – or writing a modern – screenplay are fairly rigid. They follow patterns of like the way that stories move people and why they move them. You know Um, you have a character that's in an old world. They make some sort of decision that propels them into a new world full of obstacles, full of uncertainties. They battle certain obstacles throughout and then at some point there's a climax, and then there's a resolution. Like that, that sort of like arc uh, exists because it has an effect on people. It moves people, uh, and that the shape of that story um, certainly I feel is um, informing some of my writing, and is certainly bringing up things like, oh, you know this character hasn't really taken a decision yet. Like the world is affecting him, but he's not really like pushing back against it. He's not making choices in a movie. I mean, there's obviously also all sort of movies and some people would say, you know, Alejandro, the three arc arc structure is garbage, whatever. <laughs> um, but you know, I, I happen to believe that, um, some of these things really are important and should resonate in, in fiction. And, you know um, you have a character, make a choice and that choice has consequences. And at some point there's a conflict, all that stuff is hammered into screenwriting and most movies that get produced have structures that sort of have those elements in them. And I think that some of the fiction that excites me also has, has those elements like, I like to write stuff that has, like, a strong plot. Um, I like to read books that propel uh, and that move and where people are doing stuff. I like that. Um, and certainly learning about screenwriting helps, helps that.
0: So how often are you taking a course in screenwriting or your secondary genre? Um, maybe you could just talk about, like, what, what's a general um, semester in your program look like?
1: Sure. Um, Every semester we have to take three classes. There's no teaching load in in the Michener. Uh, There is a teaching load in in, uh, the New Writers Project, which is the sister program. And by the way, I I, I do want to take a a minute just to talk about the New Writers Project because it is such an amazing program in its own right. We take the same classes that the New Writer Project people do. Um, We are in the, in the same cohort, in the same classroom, with the same faculty. The support is really kind of very similar. Um, I mean, there are some minor differences in um, stipend, and they, but they, the New Writers Project is still very generous with their – it's a fully funded program as well. Uh, students get a stipend. They do have a teaching component. Um, And I believe, and I might be wrong with this, that the New Writers Project is now also a three-year program. It used to be two years. So even in terms of time, those two programs are sort of um, very close. And I would certainly tell everyone that is applying to the Michener to also apply to New Writers Project because it's a beautiful program um, and very supportive to its students. So before I did that aside...
0: You said that usually usually three classes per semester? Oh, yeah.
1: Usually three classes per semester. Um, during the three years, you have to take three workshops on your primary field of study. So in my case, three fiction workshops. You have to take two workshops on your secondary field of study. So in my case, I would need to take two workshops in screenwriting uh, through the three years. Um, then you have to take a few, uh, studies courses in your primary. I think it's two studies, two, two study courses on fiction and one on screenwriting. Um, and then you have, I think about seven or eight electives that you can choose. And basically you can choose whatever you want in the whole system of classes at UT, um, that have to be uh, at the graduate level or upper upper division, um, and then you have a couple of thesis classes. So the last two semesters that you have, one of your classes has to be on on your thesis. So you, basically, it's an it's a. You meet with your instructor throughout the semester to talk about your manuscript, uh, and then on the first year, you have a first year seminar that everybody has to take um, that, you know, mixes all the fiction, all the poets, all the screenwriters, all the playwrights together that have been admitted that year. And you get to really sort of get to know everyone and also work in other disciplines and try your hands at, at everything. Um, but the program is super flexible with that. Um, I've had friends, um, that are fiction primaries that are in my fiction cohort, that have taken poetry workshops, playwriting workshops and screenwriting workshops. Um, and I have people, I have people, friends that have changed their secondary focus in the middle of the program said, you know, I thought I wanted to do screenwriting, but what I'm really passionate about right now is language. So, and you know, I have this great poet that's coming to school, so I'm just going to switch to poetry. And that's perfectly fine. I think the program understands that that's part of the dynamic and um, they're facilitating all those decisions. They're helping you through them. And it's not this rigid system that kind of ties you down to one particular thing.
0: Well, it sounds great. And before we go, I want to give you the last word. If, if we missed anything that you really wanted to talk about or if you have advice or anything that like maybe uh, you know now that you wish you knew before that you want to share
1: with <laughs> listeners. Um, well, I mean, just gathering the strength to apply uh, to these programs uh not being disillusioned if if you get turned down. I mean, certainly for me, those those rejections help me sort of work harder on my stuff. And it's the same I think with submitting work. I think we're all as writers very protective of our work and we can all feel vulnerable when when rejections come our way. But I think that's just part of of writing, um, and kind of sticking to it makes, makes such a huge difference. So I know some of these programs are, are extremely competitive, but, you know, working on craft and not forgetting that, like what we're all really trying to do is, is get better at writing. And these programs obviously help a lot with that, but, you know, it's all about working and working and working and working at it and you know eventually something gives hopefully
0: well congratulations on the recent success um in in publishing and thank you so much for taking a few minutes to stop by and chat with me i really appreciate it
1: oh thank you jared it was a